Good morning again. It's really good to be with you. You can turn to Mark chapter 3. We are going to be continuing our series in this wonderful gospel. And so if you remember, there's a few of us that are preaching through um, this together. It'll probably take us a little bit of time, but that's okay. It's well worth uh, the time and effort uh, as we plug along through God's Word. I'm going to read from chapter 3 here in Mark from verse 7 down to 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanjerus, that is, son of thunder, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you humbled by the freedom we have and by the privilege of having your word written form right in our hands. May you use it this morning to encourage our hearts, to challenge our hearts, and that we might know you better through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I met my wife, Valerie, when we were 14 years old, believe it or not. So I've known this woman now for 28 years. Last week, we just celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary. Now, when I was 14... I was pretty much a clueless Egypt, and I, sure, I thought she was pretty, but, you know, I didn't even really know if I wanted to spend time with her or not, you know? I mean, you're 14, what do you, what do you know? At 17, I started to get those warm fuzzies when she walked in the room. <laughs> Would I like to be with her? Yes. Did those warm fuzzies allow me to be with her? Well, not really. I was just infatuated, right? (laughs) Infatuation doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. Uh, But when I was 20, I brought up the idea of a relationship. And I was very interested in this woman, who I had now known for six years. She said that I was more like a brother. (laughs) But that she would pray about it. So I remained interested. Did being interested allow me to be with her? No, did not allow for that. 
So at 22, after two years of her praying, she brings the idea of a relationship up to me. Apparently, that praying helped a bit. So we officially started dating when I was 22. Now, did dating allow me to be with her? Well, sort of, but we lived four hours apart. So now, not, not really. Seven months later, after we started dating, I proposed. We set a date in the summer to be married. That was only five months from the, from the day I proposed. And so we were, we were engaged. Did I get to be with her? No, because we were still living four hours apart. But then finally, on the 19th of July, 2003, we made vows to each other and were married before God and our guests. Did this free me to finally be with her? Yes, it did. We finally could be with each other. You see, being with my wife, with her, is not the same as being friends as being infatuated, as being interested, dating, or even engaged. <laughs> None of those things are the same thing. The intimacy, the withness that marriage allows is altogether different. It's an altogether different type of relationship. And it is these differing realities of relationship that remind me of what's happening here in Mark 3. So when we look at the first section there, verses 7 to 12, it's, it's very much a summary of, of kind of what's already happened in Mark. And so what, what Mark is doing is he's bringing us into this new section. It's, it's the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And it's in this transition passage where we see these crowds again. These crowds, they're, they're thronged around Jesus. There's a lot of amazing things happening amongst those crowds because Jesus is there and he's at work. It's very obvious that that was happening. There are those of them in that crowd who knew of Jesus. There were those in the crowd who were infatuated with Jesus. There were those in the crowd who were interested in Jesus. There were those in the crowd that were enjoying the experience of being in the presence of Jesus, seeing his work. But most of those people in that crowd that we read of were not with Jesus. And how do we know that? Well, because in just a few months, that same crowd is going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him. They weren't with Jesus. So who are with Jesus? Well, from the passage, we see that it's those he calls, those who are known by him, those who are united to him, which is very similar to marriage. You see, knowing of Jesus, being infatuated with Jesus, being interested, all those different layers of relationship is not the same as being with him. The crowds in Mark 3, if you saw, if you noticed, they saw what he was doing. They were very much interested in what was Jesus doing. Is Jesus going to heal me of my disease? Is he going to feed me? But they wanted more of what he was giving them. They didn't necessarily want more of him. And there's a big difference in that. Just like in that first century, those people in the first century, they could be attracted to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We too, we can have this, we can just be infatuated by what we see 
Even in this community, you might be here and like, this is an amazing community. But are you just infatuated with the community of Jesus? Sometimes we forget what the true value of being with Jesus is. So I want to encourage you today to rest in the truth, if you're a Christian this morning, that you are with Jesus. You are with him. What does it mean to be with Jesus? Well, it's not exactly the same as marriage, right? But it certainly is a picture. Marriage is a picture of the truth of our relationship with Jesus. So I want to show you three realities that the Christian can enjoy because of being with Jesus, actually being with him. So the first thing that we can enjoy is that a life with Jesus is centered on him not on us. And you might say to me, Steve, you're saying that I can enjoy something that's not centered on myself? And I say, yes, (laughs) you actually can. Uh, Now, I'm a very imperfect husband. I'm I'm very selfish. Uh, But marriage, ideally, right, allows the husband and wife to lay down their lives for each other with a rich and deep enjoying of serving the other because of mutual love and desire for each other. And in this passage, what we see in this passage from verses 13 on to 19 is that it's really all about Jesus. You see all these other names in there, but it is about Jesus. In fact, if you just look at those verses, starting in 13, he, Jesus, he went up on the mountain. He called to him those he desired. He appointed 12. He named them apostles so that they might be with him that he might send them out. If you're a Christian this morning, you might well believe that Jesus called you and you came to him. That's what Scripture teaches from cover to cover. But do you really believe that Jesus desires you? It isn't like he just calls you like you call a dog and the dog comes. Jesus desires you. That's what the passage says about these men. He desired them. He calls those he desires. He desired these men. He wanted Peter, the big mouth. He was always sticking his foot in his mouth. He wanted that Peter. James and John, the loud and the proud, who were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. He wanted those guys. He desired Simon the Zealot, who was basically some extremist or maybe even some terrorist. He even desired the one with the traitor's heart. Just that Judas never responds to Jesus in faith. So you see, Jesus doesn't desire them because they're really awesome people. He doesn't like them because they're better than everybody else. And that's true for you, believer. He does not desire you because you're better than your neighbor. He loves you because he loves you. There's a mysterious element to that, to the love of Jesus. We, we think in our flesh that we need to earn love. That's not the love of God. That is not the love of God. So he calls these men, he appoints them. But why does he appoint them? Look at verse 14. He appointed 12, this is amazing, so that they might be with him. That's why he appointed them. He did not call them so that he could give them healing or wealth or fame. See, the treasure is so much greater than that. The treasure was being with Jesus. 
And that is what he called them to. To join with the very one who is the creator of this entire universe. The giver of life, the prince of peace, the great I am. The pearl of great price, the hidden treasure. He's the savior of the world. That is who he is calling them to be with. And he calls you to be with him, to know him, to be known by him. He wants you to see him exalted in every conceivable way. You can gaze on every facet of his being, his perfection, and all his purposes in your life. It's like inspecting a diamond. I asked my kids this morning, they have these really big fake diamonds, and I was trying to find it this morning because I forgot to ask them yesterday, and I was going to hold up the diamond. So pretend I have a diamond here. You can look, right, and you can see on one side of that diamond, he's transforming your very soul. He's transforming it. And then you, you can look on another side, and you can see how he's actually using you in your workplace. And then you can, you, can, you can turn the diamond, you can see on this facet how he's actually working in your family, and he's doing something, even sometimes when you don't think that he is, but he is doing something. And you can even look on one side of it, and you can see his glory and how he sustains you through suffering. Because to be with Jesus is to partake in suffering. This is similar to how my marriage with Valerie is wonderful and beautiful, but it's also hard at times. I cannot just think of myself in marriage. I'm bound to another, so her tragedies are my tragedies. I'm with her in her lows and in her extended family's lows. Her health struggles are my struggles. And if people hate her or slander her or defame her, I feel it because we're married. And that's the same when we're with Jesus. Jesus appoints, Jesus calls, we share in his purposes, and we enjoy his sovereignty even in our suffering. I would say especially in our suffering. We can enjoy his sovereignty. Jesus knows very well what he's calling these men to. He knows very well what's ahead for them. He's calling them to die to everything that they think that they need and to be with the one, the only one, that they actually need. See, the crowds, they thought they needed this healing from this disease, that, or the other. But that's not ultimately what they need. They need to be with Jesus because being with Jesus is the only means to have their true problem of sin taken Is this your experience of the Christian life? Or are you just merely infatuated with Jesus or even infatuated with the community that's created around Jesus? Do you just like being with God's people or do you actually enjoy being with Jesus? The crowd just wanted the experience. They They didn't want Jesus himself. Is Jesus calling to you, you to, to him today? He's, he's worthy of that. He's worthy of you following. He's worthy of you dying to all the things you think you need. He's the only one worthy. There is nothing else worthy. There's nothing else worth laying your di- lives down for. So being with Jesus is a life centered on him, but it's also a life that includes heralding truth. Look at verse 14. He appointed the twelve so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. 
Think about all the fake news in our day and age. All the little bits on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and fill in the social media blank. You know, they're coming from all kinds of sources with all kinds of different motives. This world is desperate for truth, longing for accuracy, but most can barely find a sliver of sincerity or a little tiny morsel of hope in all that fake news. In verse 14, Jesus appoints these 12 so that they might be sent out to preach. So being with Jesus means that you're heralding truth. You're proclaiming truth. Our lives should be this endless, refreshing infusion to others of the glorious, life-giving realities of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our lives should preach. That's what our lives should herald. I'm not saying that everyone should be standing up here preaching, but I am saying that kingdom work involves the whole body. That's what kingdom work involves. That's what preaching as a community of faith involves. Just like my marriage with Valerie heralds the truth of what marriage actually is, of what purity is, of commitment, family, covenant, and a host of other things, just like this, just the simple fact of our union heralds that to the world, our lives should be heralding the truth of the gospel. And man, do I struggle with this. In some ways, it's really easy to get here, up here, and talk about the Bible. It's a whole other thing to actually then be living out that truth in family and community. Loving my neighbor who's hard to love, sacrificing my time for other people, joyfully submitting to my boss, doing my job as unto the Lord, and not for myself with diligence and purpose. Steering conversations towards spiritual things, listening well with compassion and empathy, turning the other cheek when offended, being content in all things, not complaining but giving thanks, talking about Jesus like he is with me all the time in every way for my good and his glory. These things, these, all those things just herald the truth. They proclaim the truth to a dying world. Just like these men were sent out to preach, all of us are sent out to do the same. Jesus is good news incarnate. It's good news in the flesh. And if we're with Jesus, how can we not be the same thing? If we are actually united with Jesus, we're with him, then our very lives should be that to the world. Maybe, maybe you feel like me, like you just never preach with your life sometimes. You never herald. You're never really proclaiming the cross of Christ. Sometimes we just need the reminders of who we are from the scriptures. In fact, I would say we always need the reminders of who we are from the scriptures. And, and 1 Peter 2 is this beautiful passage. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the mercy that we've received be our motivator to, to push us out to show that same mercy by heralding the truth of the gospel to the world around us, the very broken world around us. Because a life centered, a life with Jesus is centered on him rather. A life with Jesus is a life that heralds truth. 
He's called us out of darkness into light, is what Peter says. And my last point there is kind of centered on that. A life with Jesus is a life that banishes darkness. Look at verse 15. He appoints the twelve that, he might, that they might be with him. He sends them out to preach. And then verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. It's hard to hide things from my wife. She exposes my sinful heart in good ways. She pushes me towards the light. In a similar way, this is what believers do in our broken world. And this world's pretty broken, isn't it? Families are torn apart. Marriage is optional and at best temporary. Babies are destroyed in their mother's wombs. Think about that last point for a second. The very place that should be a safe haven for the unborn is one of the most dangerous and deadly scenes on earth. Murder, strife, slander, greed, power, corruption, war, terrorism, and we haven't even talked about our own hearts yet. <laughs> the selfishness, the pride, the unbelief that just feels really pervasive at times, doesn't it? The mixed motives, the besetting sins, the addictions, the ongoing fears that can just flatten us on some days. The darkness just feels palatable at times. The spiritual oppression, cynical spirits, lack of love, it's overwhelming. But brother and sister, this broken world should not depress us and it should not discourage us. What it should do is it should move us out to action when we see it. Because we know that Jesus reigns over the broken world. Just like Jesus set his face. You read that in the gospel sometimes. He set his face to Jerusalem. He had a purpose of conquering evil. We too should set our faces against the darkness of this world. Jesus appointed these men to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus gave them authority. It's not their own. It's delegated power. Now, we're not apostles, but if we are in Christ, we are disciples. And we, too, have power over darkness because the very same Jesus that sent these men into this world by his Spirit sends us. We are the agents of light in this world. And did you never notice something about light? Where light is, the darkness can't stay. It just can't. It's not like you flip the, the lights on and there's like a little corner where it's like just pitch black. It'd be kind of weird because the darkness has to flee. Banishing darkness, though, has to start in our own hearts, doesn't it? Now, banishing darkness from your heart isn't something that you just muster yourself up. It's not just penance that does that. I just got to do better. I just got to do better. I got to pay God for this and pay God for that. I got to send flowers to someone because I offended them. That's not, that's not how we banish evil in our hearts. It's repentance and faith. Two simple steps to banish evil in our own hearts. When we turn from sin, that's repentance, right? When we turn from sin, we confess our need for Jesus and we run towards him in forgiveness, demons tremble because they don't know what to do with that. The blood of Christ destroys all power that that darkness has over you. When we take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, 
The principalities of this world are struck dumb and powerless because their darkness is burned up by truth. When we move from self-condemnation, do you ever have those days of self-condemnation where you just can't do anything right and you feel like you're just a sinful, sinful person and everything you do is wrong? When we move from that to repentance and we move to Christ-exaltation, so instead of self-condemnation, Christ-exaltation, the enemy can't do anything with that. The enemy can't touch that. There is no kink in that armor when you're exalting Christ. There's no kink in that armor. That's why practicing the one another's is so important. You know what the one another's are? It's all those positive commands in Scripture that were given to practice towards one another, love one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, stop passing judgment on one another, accept one another, greet one another, agree with one another, serve one another, bear with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, submit to one another, teach and admonish one another, encourage one another, offer hospitality towards one another, confess your sins to one another. These practices, they're just not suggestions, right? They're commands. And so when we obey these, darkness is banished in our hearts, and it's banished in this church. And there is no room for evil anymore because the light of the glory of Christ that's, that's living in us is coming out of us, and there's no place for darkness anymore. And so we are called to banish darkness. We want to be a church that is a lamp set high, a city on a hill, the very light of the world, where when people come in on the, uh, into this hall on the darkest, coldest, most depressing winter day, they find warmth and hope and joy. Because when we encounter hopelessness, we should bring hope. When, when we encounter death, we should bring life. When, when we see people being judged, we should bring compassion in that situation. These men were casting out demons. These were fishermen and tax collectors. They're not like the, the up and mighty religious leaders of their day. They were simpletons. They were just simpletons. They were given amazing purpose, and so are you. You are giving amazing purpose. Think about the legacy of this list. You have this list. Peter, James, John, stalwarts of the church. Apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about church history. Just through the ages, you've got Augustine, you've got Calvin, you've got Luther, you've got Amy Carmichael, you've got Lottie Moon. You have all these people that we just think about that are just amazing. Think about today. You've got the John Pipers and the Tim Kellers, the Nancy Guthries, the, the John MacArthurs, these people where you just, oh yes, they're amazing. And all of them were banishing the darkness of their day or are today. But I do think when we get to heaven, I really don't think it's going to be those saints that actually had the biggest impact on our Christian faith. It's easy to think that because you read this book, or you see them preach, or hear them teach, and you're like, oh yeah, they really have impacted me. I think it's going to be the faithful moms and grannies when we get to glory, it's going to be the moms and grannies who prayed for us. And we'll realize those are the ones. Those are the ones that had the biggest impact on us.
It will be the supportive spouse or friend who consistently nudged us back to Jesus when we felt we were in a really dark place. It's going to be, it's going to be the Sue Ellens. It's going to be the Karinas and the Johns who are most obviously living with Jesus in both the joys and the sorrows of life. It's going to be the, the Shanes and the Johnnies and the Jackies who most obviously were preaching both in word and action to us about the fact that I just need Jesus today like I did yesterday. It's going to be the Aisleys. It's going to be the Ruths. It's going to be the Nicks who were banishing the darkness around me by speaking hope, standing for truth, and laying down their lives for the good of others. You see, you have this list here in this chapter. It's ordinary people whom Jesus did extraordinary things through, right? And this is what he does today. He's using ordinary people in ordinary ways, in ordinary jobs, in ordinary communities, and he's building this unshakable kingdom that will never, ever end. Being with my wife is amazing, wonderful, it's hard, it's exciting, it's challenging, it's beautiful, all at the same time. Because that's what relationships is, they're messy, right? And being with Jesus on this side of heaven is similar It changes us. It changes us into the people that Alan read about in the reading this morning. There were lots of one another's in there. Go back and look at that reading in Romans 12. You see, the crowds were infatuated, but the disciples were transformed to be able to love God and love others. They were the hands and feet of Jesus. That makes me really excited to be with Jesus because he's doing the same thing in me. I'm not the same man I was 19 years ago before I married Valerie because being married to Valerie has changed me. And that's Christian maturity. Loving Jesus more today than I did yesterday because I see more clearly that he really does desire me and he wants me to be like him. Today you can enjoy and relish in the fact that Jesus is the center of all things. He's the center of all things. We get to herald that fact. And by our lives, we banish darkness in our own hearts and in the communities around us. We are just, we're just ordinary, common, simple people. But Jesus has called us to himself because he desires us. That's extraordinary. I don't get that. I don't fully understand that. (laughs) But that excites me, and I do hope it excites you and moves you, moves you to action. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, their scriptures. We thank you that the Lord Jesus in his grace actually desires us to be with him, to herald, to banish the darkness. Help us, Father to see that, to practice that, to know that, to believe that. Help us not just to be infatuated with some idea of Jesus, but to, to be with him, to know him. 
We trust you with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.